Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number 10 of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. We are actually, <clears throat> really and truly, going to finish the book tonight. Uh, and I do have several of your emails. There, I, I got a bunch of emails that came in kind of late, and I weren't able to, I wasn't able to get, I weren't able, I was not able to get them up on slides uh, for tonight. I still might come back to some of those, either mention them as we go through, or I might get, get some time uh, to... Uh, bring those out next time or this time we, we still have a few classes after this because of course after today we shift to talking about the miniseries we're going to be talking about episodes one and two of the miniseries for next week and by the way uh one of my announcements this morning uh i i know a question <clears throat> that I, some people have asked do you really mean that we're having you know you're gonna do the classes normal next wednesday night the night before thanksgiving Yep. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm not traveling, so I'm going to do it. Um, because if I don't, then we're going to start bumping up closer to Christmas and bigger travel and confusion in December. So, yes, I, I'm, I, we are going to meet next Wednesday evening uh, to discuss the first two episodes. Um, other than that, I have I don't have that many uh, announcements this evening. I do want to remind you uh, about uh, what I announced last time about the the job openings that we have at Signum University. I want to encourage you to look through the list. I've heard from a, a few people already, which is great, and I'm looking forward to uh, to speaking with them more. And I'm, I'm hoping that there might be more of you who might be interested uh, in working with us. So again, I just wanted to draw your attention to that signumuniversity.org/slash jobs. Uh, so thanks. Okay. <clears throat> Let's then jump right in and get through the end of the book. What I want to focus on uh, this evening, uh, we were talking, remember last time we were talking about the old alliances and that kind of thing. Uh, today I want to see sort of where, you know, try to bring us to where we get to with English magic <clears throat> at the end of the book. Um, and I want to begin with the position that the English magicians themselves are in at the end of the story. So, uh, well, not exactly circling back too far. Um, thinking about Jonathan Strange and the position he was put in, you will recall we looked at the scene when the gentleman with the thistle-down hair uh, attacked him, right? Um, called upon the power of his old alliances. We had that reign of blood. We had those birds. Um, and, uh, had, you know, he cursed him to darkness and despair. And so we had the cone of dark, you know, not cone of darkness, the sort of pillar, tower of darkness that followed Jonathan Strange around and how he was doomed to solitude. Though it seemed that other people could visit him in his tower of dark solitude, uh, well, at least Byron could, right? And Dr. Graysteel apparently was able to, to, uh, to uh, 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 do it as well. Um, but uh, anyhow, so, okay, so he, uh, but nevertheless, the gentleman was senten sentencing him uh, to darkness, solitude, despair. Um, I was, uh, I was really sort of touched by Dr. Graysteel. The Graysteels, I love the Graysteels. Uh, I thought they were a great set of characters in general, um, especially, of course, uh, Flora. Um, but her dad is pretty cool, too. Uh, um, and even her aunt. Um, what was the phrase that she repeated three times when... Arabella Strange comes through the mirror. She's, oh my dear, oh my dear, oh my dear. And the sense that you get of 
the recognition, her sort of dawning recognition of exactly what Flora has done is now all of Flora's peculiar behavior, uh, you know, over the last weeks is finally made clear to her and she recognizes not only the explanation for all of those things, but she begins to see the real magnanimity of spirit that Flora Graysteel has shown and, and the, sort of the true largeness of her character and generosity towards... Uh, Mr. Strange and towards his wife. I, it's, I, I find that a really beautiful moment. Read very well, I thought, by the way, uh, <clears throat> by uh, the, the audiobook narrator. Anyway, Dr. Graysteel, this is, so this is after Dr. Graysteel arrives when, the, when uh, Jonathan Strange comes uh, to Padua in a thunderstorm. I tell you, Louisa, said Dr. Graysteel, I would not exchange with him now upon any consideration. Everyone fled at his approach. From Mestra to Stra, he could not have he could not have seen another living creature, nothing but silent streets and abandoned fields. Henceforth the world is an empty place to him. A few moments before, Aunt Graysteel had been thinking of Strange with no very tender feelings, but the picture that her brother conjured up was so shocking that tears started in her eyes. And where is he now? she asked in a softened tone. Um, <clears throat> henceforth, the world is an empty place to him. Um, the results of the the kind of isolation that the, that the gentleman with the, with the thistle down hair has placed him in um, is uh, sort of the focal point here, right? And the way in which his own well, what I find really interesting about this, you think about what happens back in England, right? Uh, remember that, uh, and I, I almost quoted this paragraph too, but then I figured I have enough slides not to get through. Um, <clears throat> but you'll remember anyway the passage about the shift in public opinion towards Jonathan Strange. How when he came back from the peninsula, you know, as the uh, uh, the the what the Hexenmeister of the Great Wellington, um, he uh, you know he was he was you know, famous. He was a war hero. His, his, you know, Jonathan Strange's stock was never higher. He was writing his book. He was going to be all sort of courage and patriotism and open-handed generosity where Mr. Norrell, everyone was questioning Mr. Norrell's character and few people really liked it. Well, nobody really liked him, though some admired him. Um, and, uh, and others used him. But anyway, you get, remember Jonathan Strange, everyone loved Strange. And then all of a sudden now <clears throat> everything has turned, right? With the horrors and the stories that are coming abroad. And then, of course, uh, with Lascelles in particular, uh, with the endorsement of Norrell doing the smear campaign where they're not only uh, sort of amplifying and circulating all of the dark rumors about the, the black magic he performed during the war, but also, of course, how, <clears throat> how he's murdered his wife and all that kind of thing. Um, so... You know, it talks about the the shift in public opinion, but it's more than just a shift in public opinion, right? You know, one of the things that we begin to see is there's a kind of irony here, right? On the one hand, at first, when Mr. Norrell reveals himself, right? Remember the very first reaction to Mr. Norrell when he came to London. Everybody wanted to meet him, right? He was, This is what drew Drawlight and Lascelles to him in the first place, right? He was a social phenomenon when he arrived in London. Everyone was curious about him, not in the way that you're curious about, you know, that, you know, it's not like they were going to see a circus freak or something, because remember, this was an English magician, and this is one, you know, that the, the sort of that primary way in which back at the beginning of the book, um, you know, we, as readers, are kind of out of touch with the culture of the book, right? Because 
unlike apparently all of the characters in the book, we were not raised with this tradition of English magicians, right? We were not raised with stories on stories of the Raven King and and uh, and you know uh, Thomas Godbless and Martin Pale. So we don't have any of those associations. So an Englishman who can do magic seems to us in the first chapters a peculiarity, whereas there's something nostalgic, something in a vague sense patriotic. That is to say, uh, not patriotic in the sense of like something which is actively supporting. I mean, at the time it wasn't. Uh, you can make that argument later on, but at the time there was nothing. He wasn't doing anything actively to further the cause of the British Empire. But what he was, uh, what he what he was was sort of building up this sort of nostalgic sense of the of English greatness, right? So he was vaguely patriotic in that way. Okay, so the this English greatness, which everybody knows about and everybody thought had passed away. Okay, it actually turns out it hadn't passed away, right? So everybody loves Norrell. But it's not just that nobody was ever really... He was never appealing to anybody, but they liked the idea of Norrell, right? They Everyone liked the idea that English magic had returned. Um, now, the English magicians, both of them, Right, and we can see this when Norrell, you know, comes to face the irate ministers. Right, um, both of them are sort of falling out of favor. The magic which separated them from everybody else, and which also made them attractive to everybody else, now that sort of magic is coming back to England, they are being isolated. Right, um, and so that that sort of particular trend and the way that that coincides, the way that it coincides with the return of English magic um, is, I think, really interesting and really important. We see this kind of funny reversal. Um, and this is one of the first thing that really sort of leads me to be thinking, you know, one of the first of the passages that really caught my attention reading the book for the second time as sort of thinking about the status of the English magicians. What, what, what is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell's status as the book continue, as the book comes to the end. Um, their relationship with magic, their relationship with England is very different in the last few chapters than it was in the first few chapters. Well, Jonathan Strange isn't there, but you know what I mean. Um, and again, this is our first kind of clue. We see Jonathan Strange himself totally shut off and isolated. And remember, again, as I said, what happened, Norrell very quickly sort of shuts himself away. He flees back to Hurtview Abbey to confront Jonathan Strange. Right, but we see him. We see him. You know, after that moment, after he has that moment where the ministers are upset with him, Mister Norrell is never in touch with the community really ever again. Um, and Janice, I agree that they're simply not needed in the way they were in the beginning. But that's not exactly how it happens. That's like that is. It may be that in fact, at the end, they are unnecessary. Right. Um, as, of course, we see when the story comes full, full circle and we end the story with uh, a, a, you know, a meeting of the learned uh, members of the York Society of Magicians, uh, reunited, but reunited under very different auspices and summoned by John Childermas, where they had been dispersed by John Childermas before. Um, so there's a nice kind of closure there, of course. Um, and Janice, again, I'm coming back to your point where we can see in that moment, right, in the end, in the final chapter, that Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell are, in a sense, well, I won't say obsolete, but certainly unnecessary, obviously not unique. And yet, 
The process of their exclusion from society is not a process of mere obsolescence, right? Um, that's not how it happens in the story. It's far more sharp, far more dramatic than that. They are shut away from society, and it begins with this. It begins with this cone of solitude and darkness uh, with which Jonathan Strange is cursed. Now, the fact also that the not only the sort of the status of the two um, not only the status of the two magicians personally and their relationship with the public and everything, but their relationship with each other, uh, sort of the peculiarity of their relationship with each other is I think also really important and important to, re- to remember uh, and to really focus on as we come through to the end. This is Norrell confronting Strange again at the end, right? And Strange is being very casual, and he's not even looking up from the book that he's reading. And uh, and remember, Norrell just breaks down, right? I have been your enemy, he burst out. I destroyed your book, all except my own copy. I have slandered your name and plotted against you. Lascelles and Drawlight have told everyone that you murdered your wife. I have let them believe it. Yes, said Strange. But these are terrible crimes. Why are you not angry? Strange seemed to concede that this was a reasonable question. He thought for a moment. I suppose it is because I have been many things since last we met. I have been trees and rivers and hills and stones. I have spoken to stars and earth and wind. One cannot be the conduit through which all English magic flows, and still be oneself. I would have been angry, you say? Mr. Norrell nodded. Strange smiled his old ironic smile. Then be comforted. I dare say I shall be so again, in time. What do we see here? What's what's happening here, exactly? What do we learn from this conversation? Um, okay, John Molina is suggesting, you know, we're seeing here, it's a, a distracted genius, um, that uh, you know, Noro is small and strange as estimation and that he has a he has bigger fish to fry uh in a sense that's true i mean we've seen him sort of admit that uh i, I forget whom who it was he was speaking to when um he well, there can't be that many people as he didn't speak to that many people after he knew the truth about arabella um but he was talking about his enemy right and how he's he's focused on 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 defeating and destroying his enemy and uh and he's asked, you mean Mr. Norrell, right? And he's like, Norrell? No. I mean, Norrell's totally irrelevant, right? Um, uh, So, so John, that sense certainly exists. Yes, Norrell has done uh, horrible things to him. You know, these are terrible crimes. One possible response, you know, sort of non-vocalized response here is you think those are those crimes? Those are not. Those are those are piddling little crimes that I now no longer even barely notice anymore. Right? I mean, it's it's um, yeah. So that is one way to look at it, and I do think that that's a factor. Of course, now his his view is sort of much uh, much wider, as Brian Yoder says. Strange has a larger perspective and a bigger goal. Um, yeah, that, that I think I think that's a great way to say it. Um, I. James Leibach says it's as close as Norrell can get to an apology, or at least an, admi- an admission of guilt. And uh, I agree. I think that that's another thing that we can see going on here. Um, what other scene should we be recalling? This, is, this scene is a parallel to another scene earlier in the book, which 
Which scene? I know that's kind of... Uh, this is always kind of a dangerous game to play because there's always a risk that the game that I'm playing is... This scene idiosyncratically makes me think of another scene uh, elsewhere in the book. Can you guess which one? Um, but uh, I, I, th- I think, well, of course, I would think, wouldn't I, that the parallels are, 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 are sort of clear and suggestive. Good. Donna's got it anyway. So, Donna, you and I at least are on the same wavelength, so that's good. Um, uh, when Strange was breaking off with Norrell, Donna, exactly. Uh, remember, Strange writes that, you know, he, he, he publicly, you know, speaks against Norrell in the press, not under his own name, but it's a sort of an open secret that Jonathan Strange himself wrote it. And, you know, Norrell knows it, he knows Norrell knows it. And so he comes and he expects Norrell to be furious. And he he gives a kind of acknowledgement and semi-apology, which is like Mr. Norrell's here. And what we see there is a very similar thing, right? Norrell is not angry. He doesn't speak angrily. In fact, he speaks more compassionately, even, dare we say, more passionately uh, to Strange, both about his own ideas about magic um, and even, and of course, as well, his own affection for Jonathan Strange himself. So, that's, uh, I think, I mean, that seems to me a really close parallel. So we can see here, in, in one of the things that I think is going on here is a sort of reciprocation of that. And I don't mean reciprocation in a purely, like, social obligation sense, right? Like, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that Jonathan is here thinking, like, well, you were really big about that time when I, you know, was rude to you in public, so I'm going to return the favor and, 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 you know, rise above it for you. I don't think that that's... That's not what I mean. I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think if there's one thing that Jonathan Strange seems to be not being in this conversation, it's sort of stilted and uh, sort of socially artificial. Um, I think whatever we can, however we can understand Jonathan Strange's reaction, I think it's not that, right? Um, but what then? What's the significance of the parallel? What do we see in the parallel? What, why wasn't Norrell angry the first time? What was behind, what what underlay Norrell's not getting angry? How he reaches out to how this act of treachery against him leads him not to condemn Strange and desire to distance himself from him, but to reach out to him and to reach out to him in ways he never has before. He 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 offers to give him the keys to the library of Earthview, right? Where ironically. Strange is right now sitting in the library, uh, having, in fact, kept Norrell out, right? So, in fact, this scene also fulfills the promise of that scene, in a sense. Um, Yeah, good. Michael Cheskowski says, Norrell's desire for magical companionship trumps his own offense. Yeah, yeah. Michael, I think, I mean, the way that I would say it is I think that in that moment... Um, and I remember I said at the time that I thought that that was Norrell's most beautiful moment in the book, and I do still think it is. Uh, this one uh, is my second favorite Mr. Norrell moment, but it's still, for me, trumped by that first one. Um, but in both of them, what we can see is this... Well, if for Mr. Norrell, we can certainly see his own commitment to English magic, and to Jonathan... Personally, he's, he he. You know, we saw him respond to Jonathan Strange, you know, where he was 
when the concept of a rival magician was purely abstract and theoretical, he was horrified at the idea, right? It was like his biggest nightmare. When he actually met Jonathan Strange, okay, well, not when he first met him, but when he first saw that he was, when he first perceived his magic, um, he, in fact, embraced him. Yeah, Nick, he, he enjoyed having someone to talk magic with. He didn't want to be alone again. Remember, even Arabella gets this at the end, right? Um, uh, there's, there's, yeah, this camaraderie, this kinship that grows up between them. They are a community, a very intimate community, right? At that time, they were a very exclusive community. They are tied together, and they recognize that they're tied together. Certainly Mr. Norrell recognizes it. And I think that we can see the same thing here. His opposition, Strange's opposition to Mr. Norrell, I think therefore, we can see, has sort of died in two ways. On the one hand, it has been merely, you know, overborne by his uh, enmity with the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? I mean, it's there's no question, as we said before, that issue now makes any sort of friction between him, you know, any rivalry between him and Mr. Norrell seem completely petty, right? But... Um, but besides that, um, it's not just that uh, he's forgotten Norrell. It's that his own view, I think, of his rivalry with Mr. Norrell has changed. I'm, I'm explaining this really poorly. Um, it's not... The situation is not that... He had a grievance against Norrell. Norrell was his enemy. That was a serious thing. But the gentleman is a much bigger enemy and has done a much worse thing. So, compared to the other thing, he's not for you know he's not forgotten it. But it's he doesn't care about it anymore compared to the other one. It's not that. It's when he turns to sort of see the whole situation now. Um, he seems to feel differently, to think differently about his rivalry with Norrell in the first place, right? That, again, even Arabella says this, right? That even when they were fighting, she was like, please, right? You know, they uh, they were still, they were still, you know, they still couldn't do without each other, right? Um, Arabella can see that even during the midst of the bitterest period of their rivalry, that wasn't really... In, there was a sense in which that wasn't really genuine. There was a sense in which the rivalry itself was uh, was itself a distraction. Um, was clouding their own judge... Was an example of their own judgment being clouded. The reality that lay beneath, that they were in a kind of denial about, was their camaraderie, that connection between them, which Norrell admits and acknowledges... Um, so warmly and so genuinely in that earlier conversation. Strange seems to... That's what Strange seems to be reciprocating, that there's no point. It's not just that there's no point in being angry now. The bond that he and Norrell have supersedes the rivalry. You know, in the end, the rivalry... Whatever. It's uh, it's not... Uh, it's not that big a deal. And James, I agree. <clears throat> Some of this can also be attributed to uh, 
Jonathan Strange's changed perspective towards a lot of the things that led to their differences in the first place. James points especially saying, uh, you know, Strange realizes that Norrell's assessment of the risk of dealing with fairies wasn't as far wrong as he as he as he said it was before. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jim, but James, I would say that that's that's like an illustration of it, right? That is to say, if you go back to the things they were fighting about, right? I mean, so much you know, water's passed beneath the bridge since then. You know, so much has happened. So much has changed uh, in how Jonathan Strange sees the world and what he understands about, you know, all these things. The idea of holding on to that old rivalry and those old grudges, even the whole you murdered your wife thing, right? Whatever, right? Um, bygones. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. Karita is uh, quoting Megamind. You were right. I was less right. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much exactly that. Um, okay, so, so of course, there's more to this than simply, deep down, we really love each other, right? And there's even more to this than we really need each other and work together really well, right? Or even it's important for us to have somebody else to work with and talk magic about. There seems to be something bigger, something uh, what Mr. Norrell would call mystical. Well, he, what he would have called mystical nonsense, doubtless. Um, and when, of course, they're together there in Hurtview and they discover that they actually cannot be separated by any distance, that they're both stuck now within the, uh, the, the the column of darkness has been following Strange around, and now Norrell is stuck in it too. You see, said Norrell grimly, the spell will not allow us to move too far from one another. It has gripped me too. I dare say there was some regrettable impreciseness in the fairy's magic. He has been careless. I dare say he named you as the English magician or some such vague term. Consequently, his spell, meant only for you, now entraps any magician who stumbles into it. Oh, boy. Man, how unlucky that Mr. Norrell just happened to be snagged by this vague spell. You know, if it had been like John Segundus, now John Segundus would be part of the party, too. Do you think that's right? I'm not at all sure that it is. I mean, you know, Mr. Norrell has read way more books of magic than I have, so, like, who am I to say that I'm right and he's wrong? But, uh... I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the evidence is entirely in favor of Mr. Norrell here. Um, it may well be that the gentleman spoke imprecisely. We have seen him often speak imprecisely and use such phrases like that. In fact, not, sometimes does he not only um, uh, refer to the magicians as simply the magicians or the English magicians, he, he'll sometimes just vaguely use pronouns, even compelling Stephen Black to say who or to misinterpret what he's, uh, what he, you know, wh whom he's speaking about at all, right? So, um, so there's, um, there's, there's, there's always that, uh, that possibility. Um, but there's more than that. Yes, good. Noam is recalling the scene as well. Um, this is the narrator telling us Mr. Norrell's private thoughts and misgivings here. Nor did he divulge to either of them something that is to Childermas or to Lascelles, something he had discovered which worried him a great deal. 
Ever since he and Strange had parted, he had been in the habit of summoning up visions to try and discover what Strange was doing, but he had never succeeded. One night, about four weeks ago, he had not been able to sleep. He had got up and performed the magic. The vision had not been very distinct, but he had seen a magician in the darkness doing magic. He had congratulated himself on penetrating Strange's counterspells at last, until it occurred to him that he was looking at a vision of himself in his own library. He, tried, he had tried again. He had varied the spells. He named Strange in different ways. It did not matter. He was forced to conclude that English magic could no longer tell the difference between himself and Strange. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, this is why I think it's not just a question of any old generic English magician who happened to wander in would it would be equally stuck. Um, uh, in fact, I think we can prove it, come to think of it, right? Childermas was inside it. Childermas, it comes. Jonathan Strange arrives just as Childermas is leaving the house, and Childermas looks up and sees the strange stars, which means he's inside the Cone of Darkness, um, and then he leaves. And he's an English magician, certainly. Um, so, uh, so good. I've not, I not only suspect that Norrell's wrong, I think I can prove that Norrell was wrong. Um, as another English magician did indeed wander in and out of the Pillar of Darkness. Um, so what does this mean, then? English magic could no longer tell the difference between himself and Strange. Um, the two of them are bound together in a deeper sense, a much deeper sense, than we would have suspected, right? That first conversation between the two of them, when Strange was breaking with Norrell, um, showed us the personal bond between the two of them, um, the bond of affection that Norrell had for Strange, that the, what seemed to be a genuine kind of parental concern for Jonathan Strange, instead of just, uh, you know, a desire to preserve his own books. Like, right, like, he wasn't worried about Jonathan Strange getting hurt in the war, he was worried about his books getting hurt in the war. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, he seems to, you know, so, but it's not just that, it's not just the recognition that he wants and needs another magician to work with, it's something deeper, something else bringing them together. Um, and, yeah, a, a bunch of you are are wanting to jump to the end, which I am uh, openly resisting doing here. Um, I know about the Raven King spell. We're getting there. And I do think that that's what we see, but I'm building up to it like I am for a particular reason. Um, and the reason I'm building up to it in the way that I am is that I want us to I'm trying to provide or to look at the context that the book gives us for understanding what that means, right? Yes, Vincula says to Childemus at the end that the magicians were the spell that the Raven King was working. Okay, the heck does that mean exactly? Um, what I'm doing is attempting to at least pull together the passages that I, you know, some of the things that I thought were really interesting and important, which will help us to understand what that means exactly when we get there, okay? Um, so I, I, a bunch of you keep quoting that and sort of say, but that is not in my mind the answer to what's going on here. It's merely the final characterization of what's going on here. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, it's not 
to say that they were the spell that the Raven King was working. It's That's not like the answer that's in the back of the book. It's not even exactly a big reveal, though it kind of is, in a sense. Rather, it's just sort of one last way for us to think of or to conceptualize what we've been seeing all the way through. So I want to make sure that we don't just jump to that. It's, 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 it's easy to kind of cling to that um, and then just kind of push that back through into these other passages. Um, again, I don't think it explains every. I don't think that that concept makes all the rest of this stuff self-explanatory or something, but rather these things will help us to understand more what that means, if you see what I mean by that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, anyway, uh, let's let me look at the other set of passages that I wanted to look at in um, so that was sort of the, the, there, there are two sets of passages, two sets of, of observations I wanted to make um, kind of leading up to that. Um, the second, the first was about the two of them and their relationship with each other, because of course they, they and their relationship, the relationship between Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, is obviously really at the heart of this book. I say obviously because it's the title of the book, right? So it seemed pretty obvious, so we should be paying attention to that. Um, so I wanted to begin by paying attention, not just looking at the way in which English magic changes, um, but the way in wh- but the, the, the connection they have to each other, the connection that they have to English magic, and that English magic seems to have with them. Now let's look more at the Raven King's magic itself. Um, what seems to be, you know, what I certainly, by the end of the book, come to see as real English magic, what English magic really is, and English magic is obviously the Raven King's magic. Remember, that too was sort of revealed and confirmed back in that initial convert that other that earlier conversation between Norrell and Strange. Remember that was the that was the punchline. Okay, that's a little unfair, but that was the that was the big climax of Jonathan's scathing article that he published in the Edinburgh Review, right? Um that the you know the 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 Raven King's ma- you know, all of our magic comes from the Raven King. We're all doing the Raven King's magic, remember? And Norrell says, of course we are, right? Um, so that, 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 that kind of confirmation we got back then, and now we're really seeing it um, uh, play out. But let's go, let's go back a little bit. This is when we see Strange setting the Ravens free. Right, he's 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 uh, hitting the stones and he's turning them into into ravens. Right, so me- remember the context of this. This is when the gentleman with the thistle down hair and Stephen Black they've just been looking at the hounds, right? And and the gentleman was just telling the story about the hares and turning the hares into into uh, into into hunters. Remember, remember this? Uh, anyway. Um, then he then the doors are being shaken. We looked at the passage where he talks about the doors being shaken, the doors between England and everywhere else, and he goes to hunt and find out what's going on, and this is where he ends up. He ends up here witnessing what Jonathan Strange is doing. When they were gone, he asked in amazement, What are they, sir? That is he that's the birds, friends, the clouds. Creatures the magician has made, said the gentleman. He is sending them back to England with instructions for the sky and the earth and the rivers and the hills. He is calling up all the king's old allies. Soon they will attend to English magicians rather than to me. 
He gave a great howl of mingled anger and despair. I have punished him in ways that I never punished my enemies before, yet still he works against me. Why does he not resign himself to his fate? Why does he not despair? I never heard that he lacked courage, sir, said Stephen. By all accounts, he did many brave things in the peninsula. Courage? What are you talking about? That is not courage. This is malice, pure and simple. We have been negligent, Stephen. We have let the English magicians get the advantage of us. We must find a way to defeat them. We must redouble our efforts to make you king. Hang on a second. Why does the gentleman with the thistle-down hair want Stephen Black to be king? I mean, I know he's no end fond of him, right? We get that, right? Though... Gosh, come to think of it, isn't that a little bit odd now? I mean, we know that he attaches himself to... Um, uh, we know that he attaches himself to um, Stephen, right? That he attaches himself to beautiful people in general. Um, but... Is it really magnanimous? Can we really believe that of the gentleman? Do we have any reason to believe, other than his continuous declarations of affection for Stephen? I'm not saying we must necessarily believe that he does not, in fact, admire and like Stephen at all. He may well do. But, uh, just as he appears to be fond, at least initially, of Lady Paul, right? But that doesn't seem to be his relationship with people. We don't see anybody that he has that relationship with. Um, uh, he's, what does he admire in Stephen? He admires in Stephen that Stephen is attractive. But again, so is Lady Paul. So is Arabella. Right? He, uh, he collects beautiful things. He doesn't devote himself to them selflessly. Why does he make him... Why does he want to make him king? And Why does he exert so much effort to find his name? You know that last question I never asked myself until this moment? But let me come back to it in a second. First things first. Why king? Why king? Why make him king of England? I mean, who cares? He's foreseen that he's going to be king of England, right? A couple of people are suggesting he might, he, the gentleman, might through Stephen gain some kind of power over England. But, um, that doesn't really necessarily seem to bother the gentleman. And for that matter, seems like he could get influence over King George just as well, right? He had a lovely conversation with King George, right? Um, yeah, Janice, well, okay. Remember, so, 
we've got two sort of prophecies at work about Stephen's kingship, right? Or, okay, we actually have, in a sense, three, right? One, of course, is Vincuous's prophecy about the nameless slave shall be king in a, in a strange country. Uh, the second is the gentleman's own prophecy where he tells Stephen that he has divine and he's never wrong about this kind of thing, that Stephen is going to be king and it's go- he's going to be king of a country he has already visited, right? Um, so he concludes, obviously, he's going to be king of England, right? Um, the third is the vague one, but you'll remember it's that sense of royalty that everybody, long before any of this starts, before Stephen meets the gentleman, before he has fairy encounter number one, there is still something about Stephen that makes the other servants feel like he must really be not a king in disguise, but like back in his own country in Africa, he must really be uh, rightfully a king, and so there's some sort of royalty that still kind of clings to him, right? That was that that was observed about Stephen Black before any of this stuff happened. So kingliness seems to have been his destiny, in a sense, or part of his nature, even, from the very beginning. Um, uh, Tom, that's exactly the kind of thing. And Sarah Lagarde was just saying the same thing. Tom says, uh, to frustrate the Raven King. Um, and uh, Sarah Lagarde was asking, does the, fairy, does the fairy want to forestall John Usklas? You know... Yeah, it's my theory. Yeah. Um, That I think what's going on... Okay. I'm about to make a really rash generalization. Um, But the more I've thought about this book, the more I've come to believe that ultimately this story is the story of the working out of a rivalry or an enmity between the gentleman with the thistle-down hair and John Osclos. Um That not only are all of the events that we're seeing here with Stephen Black and with uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and all these things, not, and Childermas, not only are, are all of these things sort of the, sort of the final moves um, that are matching them against each other, um, it's not only that. I'm wondering to what extent... Jonas Glass's initial invasion of England and establishment of the kingdom of of, uh, of 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 Northern England was also a move to attempt to liberate England and English magic from the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, um, as we have reason to believe, based on the gentleman's sort of tour of London that he gives to Stephen Black, his memory of how he you know. Uh, he shaped London to his own will, and he describes London as spectacular, but corrupt, morally corrupt, twisted, anyway, um, monstrous even, but beautiful, beautiful but monstrous, right, under the administration of the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, even though he wasn't officially king, right? Then John Osclass comes, and the first thing he does, as Mr. Norrell rightly says, is usurp half the kingdom, Right? Why would he do that? Why would he want half of this kingdom? He already had a kingdom in fairy, right? Why does he need England? Um, why does he even want it? Um, anyway, looking at reading this passage, um, reading this passage made me think the same thing. I have punished him in ways I never punished my enemies before, yet still he works against me. We're talking about Jonathan Strange, right? 
right, gentlemen? It's it's Jonathan Strange still working against you, right? Why does he not resign himself to his fate? Strange, right? In the Tower of Dark... Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's what he's talking about. Why did Jonas Goss leave England? Huh? Don't know. Um, why does he not despair? Yeah, J- J- Jonathan, Jonathan Strange. I'm sh- I'm sh- it's clearly it's Jonathan Strange he's talking about, right? But I wonder, I wonder. Now, what about that question that I just asked myself for the first time? Why does the gentleman seek out Stephen Black's name? Stephen Black comes to him and says, Hey, um, I just met this blue guy who says I'm the nameless slave. And the gentleman says, Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. That is not, it's not, it's not a prophecy. No, that's not a prophecy, right? That's just more of a historical documentation, right? P- little piece of narcissism by John Oskloss, right? He was talking about himself. John Oskloss was the nameless slave, right? And nothing to do with you, I'm afraid. Nope. Pay no attention to the prophecy of the nameless slave, right? Um, but of course, Stephen Black is the nameless slave in the prophecy. But John Oskloss was also the nameless slave in the prophecy, um, and that Stephen is going to become the Black King, right? As was one of the names of Jonas Glass. You know that is his destiny. Stephen Black seems also to be part of a spell that Jonas Glass is casting here. Um, so does he? So Nick Marazzo exactly that. That I think that he 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 doesn't want him to be. He's trying to undo it. He's working against this prophecy. He's not going to be the nameless slave anymore, right? Again, is it just due to his affection for Stephen Black? For the just because you know, welling up out of the the the, the depths of the selflessness of his character, that the gentleman with the thistle down hair goes to that very great deal of trouble in order to find Stephen Black's name. I don't think I buy that. I think that he's working against it to ensure that he's not going to be the nameless slave because he has the secret to his name. Cynthia Smith, I agree with you. Cynthia says, I suspect names have power. After all, no one knows Jonas Glass's real, true name. Yes, yes, exactly. That he's, he will have real power over Stephen, uh, uh, over, over Stephen Black, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Carita says to make sure Stephen isn't the isn't actually the Raven King. Yeah, exactly. And Sarah, I think you're absolutely right. Sarah Lagarde says both and, right? Absolutely both and, right? That's the thing. That's the thing all the way through this. Um, it's part of the very nature of 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 the Raven King, right? Who is he? Is he human or is he fairy? Is he does he belong here? Does he belong there? Is he named this? Is he named that? Is he what is he? You know, is is he gone? Is he not gone? What? Um, yeah, it's part of it's it's part of the whole Raven King thing, right? The gentleman seems to again seems to understand things, and we've, we've talked about this at, at several points. He understands things that nobody else does, and I think that he's dealing with things on a sort of a higher level. And it's easy for us to kind of make the assumption that 
everything that happens is relevant to the people that we're seeing before us, right? But I think that there's really that there's more going on, um, and it's and this is my my idea about the enmity between Jonas Glass and the gentleman with the thistle down hair comes primarily from the fact that I think it seems to me relatively clear boy <laughs> see, see how I'm hedging myself right uh, you know I'm not okay I'm just gonna I don't care I'm just gonna say it I think it's clear that <laughs> even there I offered a qualification didn't I um, that John uh, that John Osglass completely organizes that he ab- he absolutely orchestrates the destu- the destruction of the gentleman with the thistle down hair um, that he arranges things so that he al- enables himself to be found right um, to be identified and located by their location spell which they have no reason to think is going to work right um, and then they work this spell on the nameless slave uh, you know they're guessing names and guessing names until they get to the nameless slave which brings about the result that I believe Jonas Glass wanted. Why are they doing this? Because Jonas Glass uh, 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 arranged that situation, right? Through his own, um, uh, through his own uh, chariness about his own name. Though there are other good reasons for that too, as uh, it's not just location spells, of course, that people could try to do if they had his own name. Anyway, um, but I'm uh, I'm beginning to get rather off the point, or am I? I'm not sure I am. Who's doing this magic? Who's doing this? I mean, Stephen. Or no, Stephen. Jonathan Strange is doing this magic, right? He is... He is... Uh, he has made these ravens out of the stones. He is sending them back to England with instructions for the sky and the earth and the rivers and the hills. He is calling up all the king's old allies. So, Jonathan Strange has brought magic back to England. Mind, this seems to be what that fairy lady was talking about, right? When Remember that conversation that Jonathan had with the fairy lady in Lost Hope when he goes there, right, in the flesh? And so he, he shows up in Lost Hope and he's talking with the fairy lady and she says... Um, she talks about how you know he's supposed to he's supposed to bring back English magic, and she talks about how he can fail to do it. And Jonathan Strange is all puzzled. He's like, "What are you talking about? I've already brought back English magic, right?" It's like I can't possibly fail at something I've already done. But of course, he has not done it yet. He still could fail. He doesn't fail. He does it. Here it is. It would seem right. Here now, through his invocation of the old of the old alliances of the Raven King, through his instructions that he gives to the sky and the earth and the rivers and the hills, this is what precipitates the now rampant outbreak of magic around England. That rampant outbreak of which the ministers complain to Mister Norrell soon after this. Um, Brian, but you're right. Brian Yoder says, how does Jonathan Strange find out this stuff? Well, his tincture of madness, right? Um, but yeah, even here, it's... it's He's calling up the king's old... Al- all the king's old allies? How? How is he doing that? Right? Again, is this Jonathan Strange working, or is this the Raven King 
working. It certainly looks like the Raven King's magic, right? These ravens are being sent back to England. This, the English sky is full of ravens uh, coming with messages to the king's allies, calling them to recall their their allegiance uh, and bring magic back to England. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, that sounds like something that couldn't happen unless Jonas Glass did it. But as Norrell and Strange agreed, they the magic that they were doing was Jonas Glass's magic, right? Both and Sarah, right? It's one of the things that we see, I think, again and again at the end of this book. If we try to define really strict boundaries, we don't find it. But wait a second, that's what happens throughout the end of the book, right? Is are we looking at one lady pole or the other lady pole? We're looking at both of them, right? Superimposed on each other. Are we looking at at Staircross or are we looking at Lost Hope? Both, right? Um, the 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 way in which things are juxtaposed, the fairy upon England. Um, the, the this is you know Jonas Glass upon Jonathan Strange. This seems to be um, what happens throughout the end uh, the end of the book here. Um, Norrell sees it, right? Uh, on his way home from the coast where he was busily where he was busily making his own magic that he'd already done more visually spectacular and conspicuous, uh, Norrell sees this sight through the windows of his uh, really swank and cushy carriage. Mr. Norrell has a has a sweet ride, remember? Um through the carriage glass, he saw great numbers of large black birds, whether ravens or crows, he did not know. Uh, I have a shrewd guess, however. And in his magician's heart, he was sure that they meant something. Against the pale winter sky, they wheeled and turned, and spread their wings like black hands. And as they did so, each one became a living embodiment of the raven in flight, John Usklas's banner. Remember, of course, we've see, heard something just like this before in Childermas's vision, right? Where he saw the black birds against the sky, and they seemed to be spelling. They seemed to be. It was like writing, right? He couldn't read it, but it was like the king's letters written against the sky, right? That's not exactly how Norrell sees it. Instead, he sees it almost more directly, right? Each bird wheels and turns and becomes a living embodiment of John Usglass's banner. Mr. Norrell asked Lascelles if he thought the birds were more numerous than usual, but Lascelles said he didn't know, nor obviously care Lascelles as a git. After the birds, the next thing to haunt Mr. Norrell's imagination were the wide, cold puddles that were thickly strewn across every field. As the carriage passed along the road, each puddle became a silver mirror for the blank winter sky. To a magician, there is very little difference between a mirror and a door. England seemed to be wearing thin before his eyes. He felt as if he might pass through any one of those mirror doors and find himself in one of the other worlds which once bordered upon England. Worse still, he was beginning to think that other people might do it. The Sussex landscape began to look uncomfortably like the England described in the old ballad. This land is all too shallow, it is painted on the sky, and trembles like the wind-shook rain when the Raven King walks passes by. Um... When the Raven King walks by. Sorry, you notice how I misread that last line? Because it scans better with one syllable there. Um, and I also wanted the repetition of the W from the beginning of the line. And trembles like the wind shook rain when the Raven King passes by. 
don't like it. Doesn't work as well. <clears throat> anyway, goes by works too, Karita, but the, but walks. The W picks up the W from the beginning of the line, and the wind, the W and the wind choke rain, the line right above it. Whatever. Okay. For the first time in his life, Mr. Norrell began to feel that perhaps there was too much magic in England. Um. Mr. Norrell perceives that English magic has returned, but returned in a different way. In a sense, of course, one of the things that he is perceiving is exactly what the gentleman perceived, right? What the fairy perceived when he says the doors are the doors are, 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 are being shaken, the doors between England and everywhere else. And he is now seeing the doors the doors are open between England and everywhere else. Um, he sees all of these all of these these puddles, these pools, which are standing open like mirror doors. Um, he sees he finds that the fairy fairy roads are open now. And anyone can just go down them and go into fairy, or things might come out of fairy and come into England, right? This is this is the true return of English magic, and he doesn't actually like it much at all. Um John Moline says uh, this is, of course, the loss of control. You know, his precious plans to control and regulate uh, are uh, being really uh, being really cast out. McNeil says that the Raven King is sounding more and more like a deity. Doesn't he, though? I mean, yes, yes, he really kind of does. I can't deny that. Um, <clears throat> especially since everything that we see, um, the more we learn about the Raven King, as the story goes on, the bigger and bigger he gets, culminating with that vision of, like, the eye of the Raven in the window, and when uh, Jonathan Strange says, okay, I don't want the Raven King to look at me anymore. Um, yeah, it's the the scale between any other mortals and the Raven King seems to be a really, really big one. Um, and Brian, I mean, I think that you're right. You know, uh, Brian Dimmick says uh, Norrell always wanted to return, wanted uh, to return an English magic that could be controlled by Englishmen, but now he's not sure it can be controlled. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that he seemed unwilling to do in his explanations before was, well, surrender to the Raven King. Um, I'm not sure if that's quite the right word to it uh, for it, but um, he wanted to have it, he wanted it to be under his, under control, ideally his control. But that seemed to be merely an expression, or primarily an expression of him not really trusting anybody else's control. Right? Um, again, when we when he sees Jonathan Strange actually do magic, he's fine with it, um, and fine with Strange. He doesn't actually want to keep. He doesn't in truth, want to keep magic as much to himself as he believes that he does, upon meeting Strange. And yet, uh, he, there's, perhaps there's too much magic in England, right? This kind of thing, because now if they just, if the Raven King can just kind of have his will with England, right? He just has to pass by, and the land, and the sky, and the rain tremble when the Raven King passes by. Um, 
Yeah, submit, Brian Yoder suggests. Yeah, yeah, perhaps submit is a better word um, than uh, than surrender. Um, remember what happens in the library when they summon the Raven King? Remember they use that old English summoning spell? Um with uh remember the, with the orchard and the river and everything right remember that, that Norrell's really quite clever idea about how they could do an english summoning spell without needing a name because they could just call him the king right oh wait so they're able to summon him by that name the king because he came to england to establish a kingdom here right okay he was already he had already established himself in Ferry, but he came back to England and established himself here. Um, and Hertfew was one of his places, was one of his abbeys, right? Um, was one of his lands. I wonder why. I mean, again, it, 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 as we get to the end of the book, I feel like nothing is too much to sort of expect of Jonas Gloss, right? I mean, he, he looms bigger and bigger and bigger, as I said. Um, was this all a scheme? Did he make himself king of England for hundreds of years just so that strange and Norrell would later be able to summon him by <laughs> the name of king, right? Just so that he could <laughs> he could own Hertfew Abbey? I, I mean, it's almost... Again, not that that's doubtless. There are many other purposes that he has too, um, but could that, in some sense, have been one of his purposes? That again, this was part of the long game that he was playing in his conflict, um, the conflict which I, anyway, am pretty convinced that he had um, with uh, with the gentleman. Um, well, but see, Brian, there's a question. Brian Yoder is raising the question: How successful were they at summoning him? Well, what happens? What happens when they summon him? When they complete their summoning spell and the stub of a candle burns out, what happens? You remember what happens? Yeah, yeah, the book thing, right? Suddenly the room is full of ravens, right? And the ravens are battering them and knocking everything about, right? In a dazed whisper, Norrell said, I believe we may assume that we have his attention. I believe you are right, sir. Do you know what happened? Notice that Strange is calling Mr. Norrell sir again, right? Like, nothing has changed. Still in a whisper, Norrell said, The books all turned into ravens. I had my eye upon Hugh Pontifex's The Fountain of the Heart, and I saw it change. He used it often, you know, that chaos of blackbirds. I have been reading about it since I was a boy. That I should live to see it, Mr. Strange. That I should live to see it. It has a name in the Shi language, the language of his childhood. But the name is lost. He suddenly seized Strange's hand. Are the books safe? The books turned into ravens. Talk about that. What do we make of this? Did the Raven King come? He seems to have come. It's right after this that we meet him, right? They try to locate him, and they find him. He's in Yorkshire, right? If he has come, 
why should his coming be manifested in this way? Notice how cautiously I am using... Notice how deliberately I am taking refuge in the passive voice in constructing that sentence. Um, why should it manifest it so? Why should it be manifested in that way, right? Um, because the whole question is, who's doing the thing, right? Um, but anyway, um, what happens? Or what does this mean? What does this show? So, good. Noam Weiss says that birds are messengers in this book. Yes, we see that. We just saw that with Jonathan Strange, right? The ravens are coming and they're conveying messages to the sky and the rain and the hills. Um, good. So, messengers, yes. What else? But it's not just that ravens have come, right? Good. Karina's remembering the ravens being like the letters. Right? Like the letters in the king's book. The ravens in the sky are like the letters of the king's book. Mr. Norrell's books turn into ravens. Ergo... The king's book, right? The ultimate book of magic. Childermas is very emphatic about how significant that everything else would have to be scrapped. Everything we thought we knew about magic would have to be scrapped if we could read the king's book, right? It is as if each individual book of magic in Mr. Norrell's collection, which is functionally the complete collection of all books of English magic, all surviving books of English magic, each one of those is like a letter in the message that the Raven King is delivering, right? I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Tom Hillman says, the magic of England is a living thing. Um, yes, yes. There is a connection, as, you know, again, Norrell himself admits, of course we're doing. It's Jonas Glassman's magic that we do. Of course it is, right? Um, Norrell is all about saying... It's from books, right? Magic, are, you know, the magic that you do should be the magic from books. Yes, yes, it should be the magic from books. But the books themselves are ravens, right? Or at least they become ravens. Um, yeah, I mean, Brian Dimmick, you know, I, I do think it, it might be possible that he's sort of showing the inferiority of learning magic through books as Norrell does. Um, but I think it's more than that. I mean, I <clears throat> I don't think this is merely him sort of mocking Norrell, right? Um, I'm not saying there might not be an element of that involved here. Um, but I think it's more. I think because what we're seeing is a connection. Had he been mocking Norrell, I would suspect perhaps then just a bunch of ravens would have shown up and maybe they would have you know, thrown his books about or, you know, uh, ripped up the books or, you know, in other ways demonstrated their scorn for, for, for books. That is, 
what we don't get is ravens versus books, right? Ravens is the emblem of the Raven King on, on you know, them in one corner and Mr. Norrell's books in the, in the other corner. That's not what we get. Instead, we get an identity between them, right? The books themselves become ravens, or there's almost an implication, or, or, or again, one possible thing that we can maybe conclude is that, okay, really, they were ravens all along, right? Or in their hearts, they were always ravens. Um, I, 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 to me, that, um, um, I don't, I, I don't really know, um, but I, I, but I think that we can kind of look at that either way. Um, so yeah, James Pace says that the books are sort of like messages indirectly from the Raven King. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 why have these books survived? Why have these books come to Mr. Norrell? Um, at the end of the day. So we see Jonathan doing the Raven King's magic, right? Um, that is to say, we see him summoning the ravens and sending them back to renew the old alliances, right? And it's, again, I was asking the question, is Jonathan doing this or is the Raven King doing this? In this moment, I think we sort of ask the same question, right? Here's Prim Mr. Norrell. Magic should be based upon books, solid scholarship. Whose scholarship? Scholarship of what? In the end, each of those books is a raven, right? Um, Norrell is doing the Raven King's magic every bit as much, every bit as literally as Jonathan was doing the Raven King's magic, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nomoy says that magic itself is a message from the Raven King. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, now we come to the passage that we've all been waiting for. Um, this is, uh, they're talking, I think, about the the man who could read the uh, king's letters. I've never heard of him, said Chiltermas. Vincius looked at him with amusement. Of course not. You have lived your life in the Mayfair magician's pocket. You only know what he knows. So, said Chiltermas, stung, that is not so very trifling, is it? Norrell is a clever man, and strange another. They have their faults, as other men do, but their achievements are still remarkable. Make no mistake, I am John Osglass's man, or would be if he were here. But you must admit that the restoration of English magic is their work, not his. Their work, scoffed Vincuous. Theirs? Do you still not understand? They are the spell John Osglass is doing. That is all they have ever been, and he's doing it now. See, here is the number one thing that... Again, it is really tempting, as I said before, to take this passage and take this passage as sort of being the key, right? This is the... This is the sen- that's the sentence. They are the spell Jonas Glass is doing. That's the sentence that explains the whole thing, right? That's the key to the lock of this entire story. It sounds like that. It's really tempting to read it that way. But here's the thing. I don't think Vincuous knows. Vincuous thinks he knows. But I don't think Vincuous sees the whole picture. 
of course, he wants to say... And to me, the tip-off is the next sentence. That is all they have ever been. All? Really? All they have ever been is the spell Jono's Glass is doing? What makes me suspicious about Vinculus's pronouncement here is in the midst of an ending, in the midst, midst of the culmination of the story in which we're seeing continuously double, right? Everything is doubled. This is a very one-sided vision, right? Vinculus only sees one side of the equation. It's not that I'm saying he's wrong. It's not that I think that that sentence is untrue. They are the spell Jonas Glass is doing. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. By the way, I suspect it, that part of the spell Jonas Glass was doing was affecting uh, Childermas's cards as well. That Jonas Glass was doing some magic on Childermas's cards. Um, the almost playful relationship that Jonas Glass seems to have with Childermas, right, when they meet, um, is, uh, I don't know how to, I can't find the words to characterize it exactly, but I find a kind of similarity between the attitude, the tone in which Usglas, when we actually, the only time well, or is it the only time? The only time we meet him in the flesh, when he's interacting with Childemus and reviving Vinculus. Um, the tone with which he interacts with John Childemus, there's something similar between the tone of their interactions there and the alteration <clears throat> of uh, Childemus's cards in that conversation with Vinculus. Um, and not only... Because it's not just the change in the cards, right? As like each... As like the, the card, which is the Raven King, keeps coming up again and again and again and, and changing to look more and more like the Raven King each time. But even the original drawings... Like, remember we talked about the Jonathan Strange uh, picture, right? How... The, the image that's depicted is not merely a symbolical representation of what will turn out to be Jonathan Strange. It's just a literal portrait of him carrying his club with the, uh, uh, with the leaves sticking off of it. The cards that Childemus copied, and even the imperfections of his copies uh, of the cards, including the one where he drew the picture on the back of the one where the writing came through so it looked exactly like Vinculus. Um, even that seems to have been steered by the Raven King and part of the magic that he was doing. Um, but anyway, Vinculus, of course, he's seeing... Th his, his focus is on the Raven King. Um, but I think he only tells half the story. Yes, they're the spell that Jonas Glass is doing, but I think he's wrong to say that's all that they have ever been. No, it's not all they've ever been. Um, that would... You might as well say Jonas Glass is 
the king of northern England and that's it, right? No, he's got three kingdoms. He's king of there, he's king of fairy, and he's king of that place near hell, or in hell, or a suburb of hell. I'm never quite clear about that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, that's, as I was saying, it's another reason why I'm skeptical about using this as a key. Or rather, I think that if we do use it as a key, we can easily mislead ourselves. If we go back and reread everything in the same kind of, uh, uh, well, monocular way that uh, Vinculus is looking at things here, I don't think we'll actually see the whole picture. Um, Tom Hillman says, is there a, symbi a symbiotic relationship between the exercise of their free will and the working of the Raven King's spell? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Just as just as the nameless slave is Jonas Glass and is also Stephen Black, right? Stephen Black is the fulfillment of the prophecy. There's a sense in which Stephen Black is merely sort of the echo of the Raven King. There's also a sense in which the Raven King was himself almost like the... Let me say this a different way. There's a sense in which Stephen King is the nameless slave because John Usclass was first the nameless slave, right? And he is a mere shadow and parallel of John Usclass. There is another sense in which John Usclass was the nameless slave in order to set up Stephen Black to be the nameless slave, right? Um, I think that both of those things are true, and it's important for us to see both of those things as being true. Um, and I think the relationship between John Usclass and Strange and Norrell is just as bi-directional as the relationship between Janos Glass and Stephen Black. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple of you have been making jokes about Stephen King, uh, and I've been, I, I've been paranoid that I'm going to accidentally call him Stephen King. I probably... I, did I just say it? Yeah, I probably have. I, I've been worried that I was going to by accident. Um, uh, but there you go. That's another layer entirely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so again, it's not... This, then, is the reason why I'm so resistant to merely applying this as a key. Doing it merely flattens out a story which is anything but flat here at the end. Um, if we really just apply that, okay, so the whole, the key to the whole thing is that Norl and Strange all along were just the spell that Osclass was doing. It's like we can chuck them out now, right? In the end, this was just a story about Jonas Glass. It wasn't actually, it wasn't really a story about Strange and Norrell at all. It was really only about Jonas Glass. No, that's not the case. It's a story about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. But it's a story about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell in which, at the end, we realize, and they realize, that their story was also actually a story of John Glass all along. Um, 
that's a different thing. Yeah, exactly, Brian Yoder. It's not that they're just puppets, right? That that, that would be the the kind of conclusion that you would come to, right? Um, so in the end, it turns out that Jonathan, all along, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell were merely puppet, puppets of the Raven King, or even maybe, what, manifestations of him or something? Um, so actually, we're just like, Fla- you know, taking the whole story and pressing it out so that actually the only thing that matters in the end is it's just, it, it turns out there was actually only one character in the story all along. Maybe two. Maybe the gentleman is the other one, right? Um, but, um, but I don't think that's the case. That's not, in fact, how this works. That's never how it works. We don't see that happening anywhere with the Raven King. Um, that's not how the Raven King operates. Um, and yeah, Rachel, there does seem to be free will. Um, and, uh, two of you, Mick and Tom, uh, Hillman have both, uh, are both quoting the Aino Lindelay at me. No, the music cannot be altered in Iluvatar's despite, but I am so not going there because I'm staying focused. Um, but exactly, exactly. Um, Janice is saying if the gentleman had obtained some kind of ascendancy over the Raven King, that might explain why we see so few other fairies with power. Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, it's it, I, we know there are other kingdoms uh, and everything, but the gentleman seems to be kind of a big deal. Um, and uh, um, and at the end of the day, at the, you know, it's not to say that the, if I'm right about the conflict between the gentleman and John Osclos, it's not that that conflict is the only game in town, right? Um, the conflict between their two kingdoms, um, the power struggle between those two, it's not that there aren't other people. I mean, there's still Lucifer, right? You know, there's still other potentates out there that we hear about, but um, but it's not their story, right? This story and by this story, I mean the book that we've been reading, but even more, the entire, the entirety of English history over the last thousand years has been the story of the conflict between the gentleman and Jonas Klaus. It's all in Boethius Jordan, absolutely, it totally is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mick is saying that uh, you know that he thinks the gentleman uh, exiled or cursed the Raven King, and uh, his spell was to return him to power. Um, what is it that 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 Professor Kirk says uh, in the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe"? Nothing could be more likely. Um, that's just how I feel about that. Okay, so let's look at a few um, sort of how some specific things get resolved. Um, and where we're left at the end of the story. Um, let's look at sort of how a few uh, a few things are are a few loose ends are tied up here at the end. Um, we saw Mr. Norrell's sort of link to Jonathan Strange, the two of them incomplete without each other, the two of them needing to be together, actually identified with each other at the end, bound together by the magic of Jono's glass through the magic of Jono's glass. Um. It is more than a little odd, continued Mr. Norrell, in a tone of wonder. We have done everything we set out to do, but how we did it, I do not pretend to understand. I can only suppose that John Osclas saw what was amiss, and stretched out his hand to put it right. 
He does kind of sound like a deity, doesn't he? Unfortunately, his obligingness did not extend to freeing us from the darkness. That remains. Mr. Norrell paused. This, then, was his destiny. A destiny full of fear, horror, and desolation. He sat patiently for a few moments in expectation of falling prey to some or all of these terrible emotions, but was forced to conclude that he felt none of them. Indeed, what seemed remarkable to him now were the long years he had spent in London, away from his library, at the beck and call of the ministers and the admirals. He wondered how he had borne it. Gosh, unfortunately, John Osquas just, like, the whole pillar of darkness thing, he just totally blanked on that, right? I mean, man, uh, what an oversight by the Raven King. Like, oh, it's okay, your Raven Kingliness. Like, couldn't you at least banish the darkness? That's kind of awful. Except, wait. No, it's kind of a dream come true, actually, right? Um, uh... Yeah, John Moline says, how does the thistle, does, does the gentleman with the thistle-down hair's curse survive him? Good question, John, right? It's supposed to go away when, you know, an enchantment that's cast by well, the death of the enchanter is supposed to break the spell, and yet the pillar of darkness is still there. Maybe... Maybe it wasn't actually the gentleman's magic all along. Um, again, maybe, you know, when... When the gentleman is striking out at Jonathan Strange, calling up his old alliances and doing the thing with the birds and the blood and remember, you know, the wind, the leaves. Um, maybe it wasn't Jonathan Strange he was striking at at all. Maybe it was the Raven King and the pillar of darkness around Jonathan Strange is the Raven King's magic, not the gentleman's magic. Maybe it does seem to have survived him, or maybe. It is the magic of John Osclass that has that you know maybe it was the gentleman's magic, but it, that spell, that same spell, that same enchantment has been continued or perpetuated deliberately by John Osclass. Um, why is he punishing them to make them suffer as no one has ever suffered? That's how the gentleman talks, right? But again, Norrell's recognition, right? His realization of his destiny. No, this is best case scenario. Forced solitude. What was the only thing that was... What was the only problem? What was the only thing that bothered Mr. Norrell in his early solitude? At the beginning of the story, right? He's in solitude in the library at Hurtview. But all is not well. There's something that's <clears throat> missing in Mr. Norrell's life. What what was missing? Why was his life imperfect when he was living in solitude in his library? What did he need? What was the problem? He was missing a companion. Yeah, Mick and Sarah Lagarde both suggest that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, we certainly see how he just blossoms when he finds Jonathan Strange, right? Um, so yes, yes. Um, but he wasn't doing his job. Remember the first thing Vincula says to him, right? It took you long enough, right? Um, why have you wasted all this time when you could have been restoring English magic long since? And remember Norrell's thought. Oh, he's right. Right, I have always known he had this thing he had to be doing. 
He couldn't just stay in his library. Had he lived and died in his library at Hertview, it might have been pleasant for him, but he wouldn't have been satisfied. It, 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 that, there, he needed, he needed to restore English magic. That was his job, and he had to do it. Now he can retire. Now, he's back in the library at Hertview, and his job is done. Right. Um, yeah, Mick says he was compelled. Yeah, he was compelled, sort of, except he had the choice, right? He resisted the compulsion, apparently. Um, but now, he's absolutely compelled into the retirement, into his sort of dream retirement, right? Just me, Jonathan Strange, my library at Hurtview. Forget even the rest of the house. He doesn't even have the servants anymore. It's just him, the library, Jonathan Strange, perfect, and Mr. Norrell lived happily ever after, right? Um, this is his destiny, right? Um, Think even of how the differences in temperament between Strange and Norrell have been managed somehow. Remember the conversation that Strange has with Arabella at the very end, <clears throat> where he describes the journeys that they go on, right? And remember, Arabella's like, well, oh, Mr. Norrell probably doesn't like that very much, right? He was never a traveler. And Strange is like, oh, no, actually, it's fine, right? Because we can go on great journeys, we can be explorers without leaving the library, right? Because the library goes with them. Instead, the library itself has been transported into this other realm, remember, with strange stars. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of awesome. It's, got, it's kind of beautiful, actually. Um, are they, have they been punished? No. No, they've not been punished. Um, it's the greatest, what happens to the two of them is the greatest reward that I can imagine for either one of them. Uh, is, uh, Strange, I mean, Strange is missing his wife, right? Yeah. But, um, remember, remember what Strange says when Arabella sort of asks him, like, are you going to come back? And he's like, oh, yeah. We're, you know, we're pretty sure. We've got some good leads, right, on how to banish the darkness and everything. But we've been so busy, right? So busy, like, making some really quite startling discoveries about naiads. Yeah, sorry. We were totally going to get right on the whole breaking the curse that's keeping us shut away from the world forever. But, um, but golly, you know, we've, (laughs) it's been, it's, it's, um, doesn't actually seem to be Jonathan Strange's top priority, right? Um, I, um, I don't, I'm not sure what to do with sort of the final role, the final sort of step in Jonathan and Arabella's relationship. I'm not sure how to feel about it, right? Um, I mean, his devotion to his wife, I think, is amply demonstrated by, uh, you know, what he does and why he does it, you know, in order to rescue his wife. And he succeeds in rescuing his wife. Um, But I'm not sure that 
the part of me that says, but wait, it's not a happy ending because he doesn't reunite with Arabella. Well, I'm not sure that I'm not wrong about that. I'm not sure that that's not just me imposing a certain concept of what would be a happy ending uh, upon the story. Um, Carita says he wasn't exactly a super attentive husband before. Why should that change now? Yeah, Carita, in a sense, what we have here is a more... He was always distant from her. Now he's actually distant from her. Um, And there's something a little bit more honest about this. Um, It's even possible that she'll be happier. That seems like a strange thing to say, and I feel strange saying it. Um, But I get the sense that it's true. That that's where we are. That I don't think... The last scene between John, Jonathan Strange and Arabella, I don't think is meant to be an unhappy ending. Um, interesting. Noam Weiss says, Jonathan is devoted to his wife, just not to their relationship. Yeah, that's a neat distinction. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure they don't all live happily ever after at the end. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Even Jonathan's last words to her, go be happy, right? I want to picture you doing the things you love doing and being happy, right? In other words, things that I wasn't giving you and couldn't share with you when we were living together, right? And she says, how shall I picture you? And he says picture me with my nose in a book, right? That's happiness for him. Um, Ultimately, darn it, Mr. Norrell's right again. Remember when Mr. Norrell was all like, a magician really shouldn't be married, right? Bad idea for a magician to get married. And darn it, but that seems to turn out to be another one of those things that make him just sound like an insufferable closed-minded, narrow-minded prig, but actually he kind of has good justification for and turns out to be kind of right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Carita says, uh, uh, yeah, that that their happy is different from, from your happy. Exactly. Carita, I think I feel the same way. I have a hard time personally embracing it. But see, all right, this touches upon one of my rant subjects. I'll try to limit myself. Modern readers always talk about identifying with characters. In fact, sometimes I get the impression that for many people, that's like the only criterion of what makes a book a good book. How successfully could you identify with the characters in the book? And if you identify with the characters, it was good. Um, I cordially hate that way of reading books. Heck, I even think reading books for the characters is really limited and narrow. Um, There's a lot more to a book than just the characters. Um, So when people... Again, some people talk as if, like, character uh, and the characterization is, like, the only thing that makes a book a quality book. Totally disagree. But anyway, 
Um, but that that's bad enough. But to say what really matters is, can I see my own stupid face blinking back at me from these characters? Um, and that's how I judge whether or not the characters are good, is I think a, a, a ludicrously limited way to consider literature and to read books. Um, and Karita, for me, this is a really interesting example of this. I can't identify with either Arabella or Jonathan Strange at the end of this book, vis-a-vis their relationship, right? And to me, it's hard for me to personally embrace. Um, I, I do not find likeness with myself and my own feelings in their lack of togetherness at the end. But that's okay. Um, that doesn't mean that I would be justified in saying... <clears throat> Too bad this book doesn't have a happy ending, right? Instead, what I find when I read the end of this book is that I sort of I look into the faces of these characters and I see something that is really quite different from me. I don't identify. And the extent to which I don't identify with those characters is kind of awesome. Like, it's like I'm learning something. Like, I'm being invited to see the world through different eyes other than merely my own. Wow! Books can do that too? That's kind of amazing. And this one does it really remarkably. Remember, I was already talking about this, about the fairy, about the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Um, There have been ways all along in which this book has kind of been all about that. right? And then finally, at the end, we get the world through through the eye of the Raven King, right? Um, anyhow, um, end rant. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Noam says what's important to them is that the other is happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That does really seem, that does really seem to be enough for them. Okay, a couple more loose ends. Stephen Black. Um, Stephen Black, not Stephen King. Stephen the King. Maybe Stephen King is, will be one of his names, (laughs) right? Yeah, the Black King, the Raven King, and Stephen King, why not? In the distance, he could hear someone calling, Stephen, Stephen. He thought it was Lady Pole. I cast off the name of my captivity, he said. It is gone. He picked up the crown, the scepter, and orb, and began to walk. He had no notion of where he was going. He had killed the gentleman, and he had allowed the gentleman, and he had allowed the gentleman to kill Vinculus. He could never go home, if home it had been in the first place. What would an English judge and jury say to a black man who was a murderer twice over? Stephen had done with England, and England had done with him. Hey, look, that sentence is just as much a key to the book as as that other one, right? I love that. Stephen had done with England, and England had done with him. Think of the multiple ways in which that sentence works, right? Yeah, England had done with him all right. Um, But what had it done? Right, that's the question. He walked on. After a while, it seemed to him that the landscape was no longer as English as it had been. The trees that now surrounded him were immense, ancient things. Their boughs twice as... Uh, their, yeah, their boughs twice the thickness of a man's body, and curved into strange, fantastical shapes. Though it was winter, and the briars were bare, a few roses still bloomed here, blood-red and snow-white. England lay behind him. He did not regret it. He did not look back. He walked on.
What do we see here? What's the end of Stephen's of Stephen Black's story? Gnome Weiss is remembering uh, Rose Red and Snow White. Yes, we get the fairy tale associations with those. We also get the English associations, right? A little hard not to remember uh, the White Rose and the Red Rose, right? Like the Wars of the Roses. When were the Wars of the Roses? Uh-oh. Gosh, wasn't the War of the Roses going on right at the time that the Raven King left England? Dang it. It was. In fact, the Raven King left the Orient Magician period ended uh, at the end, time of the end of the Wars of the Roses. Right around there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Janice, absolutely. The roses in front of Stephen and Lady Pole's mouths, right? The muffling spell. Rose for... What, what did Segundus say? The rose mean Or no, or was it Childermas? The rose means secrecy, right? Um, Carita. Awesome. Carita's remembering... Didn't Stephen... Didn't we get a prophecy that Stephen Black was going to live happily ever after with the with the shopkeeper's widow? Right? Maybe he will. Maybe she's going to be his queen. Maybe he's going to take her out of England into his fairy kingdom, and they're going to live happily ever after. We don't know. Right? He's almost never wrong about these things. Um, silence. Roses are for silence. Thank you, Brian. I knew I was getting the word wrong there. Uh, roses are for silence. Um, so, again, as he's looking at these and saying, I'm done with England and England is done with me, he's passing by these roses, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so what else? What else do you get from uh, yeah? And the 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 yeah the tutors, Tom, exactly. Um, that too seems to be another one of those juxtapositions, right? We had this image of like the mundane fate of Stephen Black marrying the widow, and presumably therefore retiring from service with Sir Walter Pole and. Um, living independently, married to the shopkeepers, you know, the, the, the widow shopkeeper. But that is now superimposed upon his other destiny, right? As king. Doesn't necessarily mean the other one isn't also true. Stephen is now coming to fairy. Like Jonas Glass came to England, right? Um, anyway, I, 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 there's the I, the fact that 
that uh, the nameless slave becomes king here, and the fact that his destiny was in fact to take the throne of the gentleman with the thistle-down hair himself, um, which of course begs the question: Did the you know? I was asking what was the gentleman's motivation for that all the way through. Um, you know, was he trying to undermine Stephen Black by giving him his name? I, I think he was. I think that his motivations were not entirely generous. Do I think that that means that he knew that Stephen Black was his enemy, in a sense, that he was destined to take over, or at least attempt to take over, his own throne? No. I don't actually suspect that the gentleman knew that or thought that. Because in order to know that, or to think that, he would... um, uh, I think that he was too narcissistic. that. I think that he thinks of himself too much. That it literally never occurred to him that it would be his own kingdom. Um, That uh, that he that he does. By the way, is um, a couple of you are making reference to a sequel. Is Clark actually working on a sequel to this book? Is that a thing? Or are you guys just speculating about it? I I know nothing about it. Um, is that actually a thing? Is she actually doing that? I ask with trepidation. I hope, I hope to goodness she's not. Uh, that would be kind of awful. Uh, Kat says, says, uh, Kat says, I think she's writing more in the world, but it's unclear what or who will be about. Um, it's a short story collection. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, I would be fine with that. Um, I mean, goodness knows. Talk about the, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, Tolkien's perception of depth. There is so much depth. I mean, thinking back to the Oriots and Martin Pale and uh, God Bless and uh, and Ralph Stokesy and, and, you know, and of course, John Osclass. There's so much that could be told. Um, that, you know, it's not that I would think that any other story she would write about any of this would be, uh, would be, would be awful. I just kind of hope she doesn't continue this story. Um, that uh, I just—I I hope that she doesn't. It's not a sequel in that literal sense. Not in a and here's what happened next sense. I would deeply, deeply dread. I would read such a book with great trepidation if that happened. Okay, the Ladies of Grace Adieu is the short story collection. Several of you have said very good. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. But anyway, yeah, I, uh, I, I hope, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Janice says, uh, it includes the story of the Raven King and the charcoal maker. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, anyway, like I said, that's fine. That's fine. As long as it's not, as long as it doesn't attempt to, like, extend this story. Because I think, um, it's funny the end of this story, when I read the book for the first time, I got to the ending and I was like, eh, that didn't seem like a really very satisfying ending. But the reason I think that, um, the reason I think that I thought that is just, like I said a few minutes ago, it wasn't the ending that I would have liked, right? It wasn't a me ending. Um, 
but the more I read it and the more I think about the ending, um, I the more I really like the ending. The more, or rather, the more I come to admire it and see that this ending is really. I find this that I still don't like it anymore in the sense of like it really resonates with me perfectly and it's just the kind of ending that you know it's like it doesn't it's, it's, it doesn't do any wish fulfillment for me um it doesn't appeal to me in that way but i find it very satisfying um and i uh i i anyway i find it i find it certainly fascinating uh and really really well done um okay um, anyway, one more loose end. The man bent closer to Vinculus's corpse. He plucked something out of his own mouth, a tiny pearl of light faintly tinged with rose and silver. He placed it in Vinculus's mouth. The corpse shivered. It was not like the shudder of a sick man, nor yet like the shiver of a healthy one. It was like the shiver of a bare birchwood as spring breathes upon it. "'Move away from the body, sir!' cried Childermas. "'I will not ask you again!' The man did not even trouble to look up. He passed the tip of his finger over the body, as if he were writing upon it. John Moline says, "'Look, it's the candle flame! Yeah, yeah, he relit Vinculus's candle, didn't he? There it is! There it is!' Absolutely. Um, of course... What we see here is uh, Jonas Glass writing his sequel, right? And yeah, Brian, you're absolutely right. Brian Yoder says uh, the little pearl of light reminds me of the one Jonathan pulled out of the horse and rider in the battle, the one he was just about to smash out. I think it doesn't just remind you of that, Brian. I think it's exactly the same thing. Um, that that tiny that that tiny pearl of light that we see the Raven King put into Vinculus, and we see Jonathan Strange draw out in that moment when he almost uses magic to kill somebody, which a gentleman must not do. Um, that seems to be, in a sense, the reality behind the candles in people's heads that Jonathan Strange was perceiving. Remember, crazy people, you know, mad people perceive reality. We see almost no contrary examples of that. Or rather, at the very least, the confirmed verity and significance of the things that mad people see far outweighs uh, the opposite. Which means, watch out for pineapples, man, because I don't know what it is, but there's probably something about them. Um, Anyway. Of course, the end of the the very end of the story it focuses not on Strange or Norrell, but on Vinculus and Childemus, and the fact that Vinculus is now a new book, but there's no reader, right? Um, and Childemus, of course, desires to become a reader. Um, and Vinculus, of course, doesn't any longer know, you know, he's a book, but he doesn't know any longer what the book says what he what he says what his skin means he doesn't know what his skin means anymore remember that conversation with Stephen um and it's the one though again even this uh the big open-ended question at the end of the book but I find this not open-ended in a way which to me demands a sequel right but rather it sort of opens up vistas that I wouldn't want to go down um I love this idea of now there's this whole new world 
right? Magic has returned to England. The Raven King has a new has released a new book, right? Um, he is he had his old prophecy. His old there was the story the Raven King was telling before the spell that he was working, the story that he was telling. As Tolkien will tell you, those sentences, uh, uh, from a historical standpoint, you know, from a philological standpoint, those s- sentences mean almost the same thing. The spell that he was uh, that he was making, the story that he was telling. Um, now he's done, but now he's telling a new story. And what is the new story? What is the what is the Raven King doing next? Again, to me, this is not a tune in next time when we just. But rather, it seems to me to be. Uh, I mean, I just I love the open endedness of that and the way in which we sort of get a glimpse of time in the future direction. Right, this sort of depth of time in the future direction. Um, you know, where is this going to go? We don't know for sure. Um, you know. Maybe we could discover, but I'm not really. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'd be I'd be perfectly content if we didn't discover it. But Mick, it, it is the beginning of a new age, um, and a sort of an ironic return to the uh, learned members of the Society of Yorkshire Magicians. Okay, um, the number one request from emails, and we're just about done. I'll, but I do want to talk about one or two of the request. But the number one request, and I got this from a bunch of people, was people who want to talk more about the Raven King's prophecy. I said we would come back to that, and we haven't yet, so let's do that. The uh, two magicians prophecy that Vinculus says a couple times. The first shall fear me, the second shall long to behold me. The first shall be governed by thieves and murderers, the second shall conspire at his own destruction. The first shall bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow, yet still feel its ache. The second shall see his dearest possession in his enemy's hand. The first shall pass his life alone, he shall be his own jailer. The second shall tread lonely roads, the storm above his head, seeking, seeking dark tower upon a high hillside. Um, who, uh, <laughs> no, Moy says, uh, 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 George R. R. Martin has nothing on the Raven King in terms of publication schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Raven King's fans were clamoring for centuries, uh, for the next volume. Anyway, um, so, do we understand all of this now? Does all of this make sense? The first shall fear me. The second shall long to behold me. Right, because Norrell's the first and Strange is the second, obviously. Right? I mean, Norrell came first and Strange comes second. That's pretty clear. Uh, does Norrell fear the Raven King? Yeah, yes, yes. Obviously he does. He's all anti-Raven King. The second shall long to behold me. Does Strange, yes, Strange longs to behold the Raven King, clearly. All right, no problem. The first shall be governed by thieves and murderers. Yes, right, right. Thieves and murderers governed him, absolutely. The second shall conspire at his own destruction. Well, yes, easy to say, right, tincture of madness and all that, okay. The first shall bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow. Wait, let's come back to that. Yet still feel its ache. The second shall see his dearest possession in his enemy's hand. Jonathan Strange, his wife, his dearest possession in his enemy's hand, so the gentleman with the... Okay. Okay. 
The first shall pass his life alone. Well, yeah, I mean, normal, right? Loner. He shall be his own jailer. Right, going to lock himself inside his library, or like, well, in the end, he's going to, because he goes into his library and is locked up there, so he's his own jailer, right? The second shall tread lonely roads. Yeah, right, King's Roads, Mr. Explorer, right? The storm above his head, seeking a dark tower upon a high hillside. Okay, yeah, right, right, yeah, storm above his head, we saw that, right? Padua. Easy, right? No problems, no problems. See what happens? Uh, Go back at it again. The first shall fear me. Does Jonathan Strange fear the Raven King? Yeah. Does he, when the prophecy is delivered? No. But it's a prophecy of what's going to happen, right? Yes, Jonathan Strange fears the Raven King. At the end, remember when he's like, I don't want the Raven King to look at me anymore. Right? Yes, Jonathan Strange shall fear him. The second shall long to behold me. Of course he does. He admits that he always did. Right? Norrell longs to behold the Raven King. Is Jonathan Strange governed by thieves and murderers? Well, literally. I mean, that's, this is obviously a reference to Lascelles and Drawlight. So, again, that's, that's plainly Norrell. Right? Um... Is there a sense in which it is true of Strange as well? Um, I think of uh, his desire for a fairy servant, right? Um, He wants to be in this sort of servitude to the fairy and offers himself. Or Wellington, James Lubeck says, yeah. Um, Think of the army, the the scum of the earth, right? The army. Um, And... uh, that so yeah, his being the army's magician James, I really like that. Um, especially thinking about those references to you know how uh, Wellington says that the the English army is the scum of the earth. He says it affectionately, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, the gentleman himself, and in, in the way that Jonathan approaches him, the second shall conspire at his own destruction. Does Norrell conspire at his own dis- his, at his own destruction? Well, yes, yes. His destiny, his, you know, that terrible, horrible destiny of being trapped within the darkness, he goes. He enters into the darkness and is trapped there. Um, He does conspire at his own destruction. Uh, The first shall bury his heart in a dark wood. Well, that's obviously true of Jonathan, right? It's this one which gets me, right? I'd have been, I'd have never have given this prophecy a second thought. I'd have been like, okay, well, yeah, obviously this is just like the first and the second, Norrell and Strange. Okay, that's kind of cool, but kind of pointless too because it's so obvious, right? Like, we, do we need to know this stuff? How does this help? Um, you know, what's the point? Except that bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow because that seems obviously to refer to Jonathan. Jonathan buries his heart. Remember the scene where it's with the anti-fairy spell that he cast with the put the moon in his eyes and the bees in your mouth and remember that all that stuff, right? You have to take your heart. And he takes his heart and he buries it. Um, he gives it to Arabella, right? And what happens to Arabella? Buried in a dark wood beneath the stone, literally in a dark wood, right, with a moss oak. Um, yet he still feels its ache. So it's like, okay, there might be ways. You know, you could say buries his heart. Um, Norrell's heart is buried in Hurtview Abbey, right? The library in Hurtview Abbey, um, you know, in a dark wood beneath the snow. Again, we're thinking we get that at the end, right? Um, uh, 
so, you know, you could maybe, maybe. Um, good. Rachel Draper points out that the box that Lady Pole's fingers in is the color of heartache. Can it refer to that part of the prophecy? Possibly. Possibly. James Liebach, absolutely. Um, Str- Norrell sees strange in his library. Surely his dearest possession is in his enemy's hand. Absolutely. His dearest possession... When Not only does Jonathan is Jonathan Strange in the library, he owns the library, right? He has set up a labyrinth to keep Norrell out of the library. He's conquered the library. No question. Um, the first shall pass his life alone. True of Jonathan, right? He shall be his own jailer. Very true of Jonathan. Um, the second shall tread lonely roads, the storm above his head. Of course, that's true of both of them. So, um, it's interesting because when you first read it, first and second just seems to be, uh, you know, magicians uh, uh, listed in order of their appearance, right? Mr. Norrell comes first and Strange comes second. Then, reading it again, I began to wonder, maybe it's first and second in a different sense, right? Um, that is not sequentially first and second, but in the rivalry, right? Which one of them is first and which one of them is the second magician in the land, right? Then we shall see who's the first magician in England, right? Jonathan Strange says somewhat cockily when, he, when he's referring to his return and uh, how he's going to get back at Norrell for, for uh, 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 destroying his book. Um, but no, that's not, uh, that's not what... You know, in the end, of course, they don't resolve who's the first magician and who's the second magician. Um, and so, what what I think we can see when we look at back at this prophecy from the end is both of them are both right. Um, we can see the two of them overlap. Just like English magic can't tell the difference between the two of them, right? The prophecy applies to both of them. They are again, they're both together. They are overlaid together. Um, yeah, Noam says it seems we can't separate Strange and Norrell. We are English magic. <laughs> exactly, no. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, exactly. I, I, so I think this is uh, really kind of amazing, the way in which we see it's not just... When you give a, a prophecy in a book... Um, on the one hand, it's kind of like the easiest trick in an author's repertoire, right? When you've written the whole book to go back and insert a prophecy to something that you know happen will happen in the future of the book, right? That's really pretty easy to do. But this isn't that kind of prophecy. When we get to the end of the book, we now see it's like we were seeing it in two dimensions, and now we're seeing it in three, right? Now we see this whole... It what what seemed like a simplistic prophecy, as simplistic as the depiction of Jonathan Strange on Childermas's tarot card. Um, instead, now we get the 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 we see the multiple senses in which the first and the second, the concept of first and second, are relevant to them. We see the way that these sort of overlap in the way that Strange and Norrell themselves, which who seem so different, who seem so opposed to each other, who seem like opposite poles and like yin and yang are all, in fact, are identified together and the two of them are the uh, are the, the irreplaceable team. As Brian Yoder says in history books, it will also be impossible to talk about one and not the other. Absolutely, of course not. Of course it wouldn't be possible to do that. Um, All right. Uh, 
Uh, we're already late. One more. Um, great question by Donna Smith. We've been talking about respectable magic versus black magic and science versus intuition. I think it would be interesting to talk some more about the tension between the principles of the Age of Enlightenment and the ideals of Romanticism, as seen in the literature of the time. For example, I've been rereading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in anticipation of our library hosting the National Library of Medicine's traveling exhibit on the science of Frankenstein. Cool. I was thinking of Norrell's bringing Lady Pole back to life via the gentleman as being similar to Dr. Frankenstein's endeavor, as was Strange's reanimation of the Neapolitan zombies and his attempt to resurrect his wife. Norrell, Strange, and Dr. Frankenstein were are guided by and subsequently undone by their own hubris as much as their quest for knowledge. Yeah, Donna, there's... Um, this is a, a question that which deserves either a very short answer or an enormously long answer, and as you can tell by the fact that I went to this uh, slide at this point, I'm going to try to give it the really short answer because I couldn't do justice to the long one and certainly don't have time to anyway. But that's very much... Uh, it's, a very uh, it's a very important and perceptive comment. <clears throat> we do see... I mean, uh, picturing Norrell and Strange as... The, like the fundamental difference between them as being one of enlightenment versus romanticism um, is an interesting way of thinking about them. Remember what we just saw in the prophecy, though. We have to be careful. It's easy... Well, I was about to say, it's it's easy to oversimplify things in thinking that way, because, of course, the two of them are not diametrically opposed to each other. They're one with each other. Um, they are the same magician, in a sense, though they're also different from each other. They're also opposite to each other, in a sense, at the same time, um, as is everything at the end of the book. Um, but it's... Um, but it's also really easy to oversimplify the distinction between Enlightenment and Romanticism in general. I mean, you can do a lot of really sort of oversimplified, you know, thinking versus feeling, right? Reason versus emotion, uh, correlations between, you know, Enlightenment, the Enlightenment and Romanticism. Um, and I think that those are sloppy, too. So I think that part of the problem is that is one of the dangers that one gets into in thinking about the book in the, in these terms is that I think it's very likely that one is going to end up appealing to what is really an oversimplification of the differences between the enlightenment what we call what we now call the enlightenment and what we now call romanticism and uh, and then apply that oversimplification to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is going to lead us to, surprise, surprise, an oversimplification. Um, so I, 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 I want to be really sort of cautious about that, but I also really want to acknowledge that this is an important issue, and I think it's, it's very much something um, which is very present in the book. I mean, Lord Byron is a character in the book, for crying out loud, right? So obviously this question of romanticism... Um, is Strange very romantic? You know, is he being very like a romantic in his resurrection of the of the Neapolitan zombies, or his animation of the of the Neapolitan zombies? 
Well, you could say it, uh, say so. Uh, uh, the image, uh, Lord Byron would have loved it. I mean, loved it. If only Lord Byron could have been introduced to the Neapolitan zombies, he'd have, he'd have been absolutely beside himself, right? That's just the kind of thing that romantics like, um, and which they would have called picturesque. But, um, but that doesn't mean that Strange himself... If there's one moment in the book when Strange is acting romantic, if you see what I mean, um, that is, acting in the spirit of romanticism, it's when he conjures the storm, right? Which he himself sort of sheepishly admits was rather overdone, and he blames on Byron. Remember, he's like, I, his Byron's style kind of rubbed off on me, right? Yeah, the whole, like, I shall come to Padua in a great and terrible storm. Uh, that was a little bit Byronic of me, right? I was a little, uh, was a little over-the-top romantic right there. Um, anyway, I, 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 there are, as I say, there are tons of things that could be said, but I think in order to say it properly, we'd have to f- really start by saying some really careful things about enlightenment and romanticism in general before we could really think about those categories and the different ways in which those categories apply um, to the story. But I do think that they do apply, and they're certainly important factors. And Don, I was really glad that you raised it, because I think it's a really important issue um, and something that I definitely would want to raise and sort of invite people to think more about, maybe read more about, um, and consider a bit more, uh, a bit more thoroughly. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop because we're way over time. Um, I, I got to let you guys go. It's super late. It certainly is super late on the East Coast and even later in Europe. So I'm going to let you guys go. Um, next week we will do episode one and two. I'm going to try to sprinkle in through our the rest of our classes uh, some more of the questions that you guys have been asking. So I'll try to I'll try to to pop in on those um, as we go along. But I do want to talk about the. Uh, the, the miniseries as well. So episode one and two of the miniseries, let's look at how the, what the film adaptation does, what kind of new ideas this opens up. You know, I don't, don't want to just go all film critic on it and be like, I think this is a bad adaptation. I want us to think about what are, you know, are there new ways in which it's inviting us to think about the story? What do we see in the adaptation? So um, anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night now. See you next week. <laughs>